This is a Federal News Network podcast. Not much can happen in the Army without the products and services that clothe, feed, and equip the soldiers. Responsibility for acquiring most of what the Army needs falls to the Army Contracting Command. For an update at the Association of the U.S. Army Conference in Washington, Federal Drive host Tom Temin caught up with the Contracting Command's commander, Brigadier General Christine Beeler. So if, if you think about uh, the Army's total budget and the amount it spends on contracts, Army Contracting Command obligates... 93% of every obligated dollar in the Army. Uh, last year in, 2000 and, uh, in 2022, we ended this year with almost $100 billion in spend. Uh, the previous year was $102 billion. All right, and that's a big figure. There's also something called the Defense Logistics Agency. So where do you, in terms of commodities or strategies, where do you end and they begin? So uh, the Defense Logistics Agency buys spares, repairs, um, uh, uniforms and stuff kind of after we've already gotten it into the system. So a good example would be uh, uniform items. So the Department of the Army will develop something new, will get the initial production, and then future contracts will be done by the Defense Logistics Agency Uh, And they'll continue the big stockpile and the big build along those lines. By the way, uniforms seem to be an area of constant ferment in the military across all the branches. Materials, colors, the type of camouflage, digital, and all of these Mm -hmm. things. What's going on at the moment, if anything, in Army uniforms? Well, I am wearing the latest in the Army's, you know, fashionable Class A uniform uh, that had a throwback to a previous generation. But, you know, PEO, the Program Executive Office. It's very sharp. It is. It is. I agree. The Program Executive Office for Soldier, PEO Soldier, is responsible for the Army's uniforms, uh, designs, also all of the individual soldier kit. Right. So the latest in helmets, the latest in body armor, Uh, you know, right now, the big thing is making sure we've got body armor that appropriately fits everybody in the service. So uh, an area of particular interest, of course, is body armor that fits female soldiers better than the current body armor does. So all of those things are are being uh, looked at and designed and tested as we speak. So they develop it. And I guess this happens for all of the kit items. Someone develops it with specialized knowledge, but then it comes to contracting command to find a vendor. We're actually involved from start to finish. So uh, concept and ideas, we'll do contracting with uh, industry partners that help us develop concepts and ideas for Army Futures Command. Uh, And then we'll, uh, we'll progress into perhaps prototyping and technology development and technology insertion. We'll do those contracts as well. And then when things move into a full-on program of record, we will, we will do the contracts for those items also. So really from start to finish, a Army contracting organization is involved in, in those procurement actions. And I imagine you must be able to help the process, for example, in any of the materials areas in the world and manufacturing, it's hard to source in the United States for some things, like getting back to uniform, certain textiles. Mm-hmm. And so does the contracting command maintain the type of knowledge base 
that a operating unit might need to know don't develop that way because it's only available in China, for example, some item. So again, that's uh, at the beginning, right? There's a lot of research that OSD does, that DOD, that the Army does to try and make sure that as we're looking at new technology, new capabilities, we're really making sure we're sourcing not only U.S., right? So Buy American Act is a, is a big deal, and we really, really strive to make sure we are achieving uh, those goals and objectives, but also our mission partners. So, uh, you know, Canada and Mexico is part of a, a partnership, and then our allies and partners in Europe and, and really around the world. So it's, it, it is a global supply chain. Uh, and our job is to help reduce that risk also. We're speaking with Brigadier General Christine Beeler. She is commander of Army Contracting Command, and you've got an effort going called the Virtual Contracting Enterprise, and that seems pretty important because there's a video of it on the website. Tell us what it is and what you're trying to accomplish. So uh, Virtual Contracting uh, Enterprise is a suite of tools that really enables our contracting professionals to do everything from electronic repository of the documentation that goes into contracting all the way through data analytics and so we're really trying to make sure we can harness the power of the data we have to help make better buying decisions in the future and to really help uh, all of the army units see what they're spending how they're spending and are there better ways for them to look at their requirements not just to make them smaller, perhaps, or less expensive, but are they getting what they thought they were getting when they went into the initial contract? And so by using these tools, uh, we're providing some power of knowledge into that so that commanders can make uh, informed decisions on how they want to spend their their money. And do these tools apply only to strictly Army one-off contracts, or can they be used against, say, some of the GWACs? or some of the DOD-wide acquisition vehicles? Well, the beautiful thing about these tools is if the data exists in the system, right? So think of uh, FedBiz Ops or think of uh, FPDSNG, so the Federal Procurement Data System Next Generation, right? It's a repository of information. If we can get to the data, we can pull that information in and help use that for future decisions. We can see all the contracts. We can tell you how long it took from the time we started going down the acquisition lifecycle process uh, to the time we get it on our ward to the time we actually uh, get it into the hands of soldiers. So that's the beauty of the data. And in general, how much does the Army use some of the civilian GSA types of contracts for just ordinary non-military commodities that you need in great volume? Yeah, so we use GSA all the time. So in my mind, it should be any available contract, any available requirement, any available KO, Let's make sure we're using the best tool that exists uh, to get to what uh, soldiers and commanders need uh, today, tomorrow, and in the future. So for, for my perspective, GSA is an awesome business partner. DLA, awesome business partner. The Navy, awesome business partner. And the Air Force, awesome business partner. We all work collectively to deliver the best stuff for, for, the, for the, the soldiers, the airmen, the Marines, the Guardians, you name it, we're a one big team. We just have different ways about how we approach it. And we should point out the jacket you mentioned is olive, it's not purple, but uh, spoken in a good, true purple manner. And finally, I wanted to ask you how the Contracting Command interacts with, say, the Futures Command. 
or those elements of the military that are looking at the innovative part and the non-traditional types of contractors to get that new technology and how do you interact with them and make sure that contracting command is, is there. So the beauty of Army Contracting Command is we have always been partnered with all of those organizations. So when Army Futures Command stood up, uh, we looked at, uh, we did good military decision making and analysis and we said, okay, well these products align with these contracting centers. Uh, and so we made sure that there was a contracting organization tied to each and every one of Army Futures Command's uh, programs and uh, and CFTs so that they had no, it was seamless. It would go from Futures Command and ideas all the way through to program of record if it made it that far, right? Because the idea is fail fast and make quick wins so that we can move stuff to soldiers sooner, uh, which we are going to deliver a quite a few of the Army's future uh, requirements uh, in the next two years. Uh, and so that, that went straight to the same contracting organization that would then write the contracts to deliver not only the production, uh, the, the low-rate production, but future production as well. And I imagine there's a lot of activity going on right now just simply to replenish certain commodities and stocks because of what we have shipped to Ukraine. There is absolutely a lot of activity going on. So if you think about uh, what we've, uh, what the president has authorized us to send, plus what our partners are sending, we're seeing an influx in uh, recapitalization of Army stocks. Uh, but we're not buying the old stuff, right? So if there is a new item that was going to be produced to replace the item we have, uh, we have given uh, to Ukraine, we're going to buy the new stuff. Uh, and so that's kind of the way we're continuing to move forward in that process. Brigadier General Christine Beeler is commander of the Army Contracting Command, speaking with Federal News Network's Tom Temin at the Association of the U.S. Army Conference in Washington. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. 
Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is 
to solve near-term problems. I always say it's sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those you know, sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from those stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper sticker sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. 
And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.